0: It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the
1: feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Derek Sayer about his recent book, Prague, Capital of the 20th Century. A Surrealist History, published by Princeton University Press. Prague, according to Derek Sayer, is the place in which modernist dreams have time and again unravelled. In the sweeping history of surrealism centered on Prague as both a physical location and the magic capital in the imagination of leading surrealists such as Andre Breton and Paul Eluard, Derek Sayer takes the reader on a thematic journey from the beginning of the 20th century to the immediate post-war era. Prague, capital of the 20th century, a surrealist history, received the 2014 George L. Moss Prize from the American Historical Association. The prize is awarded annually for an outstanding major work of extraordinary scholarly distinction, creativity, and originality in the intellectual and cultural history of Europe since the Renaissance. And Derek's book certainly fulfills all of these criteria. I learned a lot from this book, and I'm looking forward to talking to Derek today. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies. Thank you. And as a more detailed introduction, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in Eastern Europe? Uh, Like many
0: things in life, it was uh, a result of accident and and coincidence. Um, I was trained originally in in Britain as uh, in sociology rather than history, though I always had an interest in history. Um, And my first wife was Czech, which was the immediate uh, context, um, my interest in Prague. Now, year 1989, um, Eastern Europe opened up, as the whole world knows, and I actually got to see a country that I'd heard an awful lot about, and in a sense lived with, but never been to, um, for the first time. As a result of a trip at the beginning of 1990, shortly after the fall of communism, which is the first time I went to Prague, I thought this would be a really interesting city to study as a kind of a laboratory in which to explore some of the ideas that I dealt with in in previous writings purely at a theoretical level um, about the nature of modernity, how it differs from the past, what's distinctive about it. And, and so on. So I wound up living in Prague for nearly two years, from uh, end of 91 through middle of 93. Learned the language after a fashion, um, at least enough to be able to work with, with Czech sources. And that led to a book called The Cost of Bohemia, which came out in, in 1998. Um, and... <clears throat> Which in turn led to this book, and I, I'm now conceiving the two as uh, really part of a trilogy. If I ever get round to writing the third one, these books take quite a long time to write. And the third one would deal specifically with the communist period and and what's happened since. So that's really the, the
1: background. Great. So. Specifically about this book, for those of us who don't know much about surrealism and the surrealist movement, could you give us a brief overview and tell us about its relationship to modernism? I
0: guess we could spend the whole interview. Um,
1: <laughs> That's why I said brief. <laughs> surrealism,
0: have I, I say, is one of the major literary and artistic movements of the, the 20th century. Um, one of the few where everybody uses the word surreal. Right, in a way that wouldn't be true of a lot of other art movements. It's passed, in a way, into popular culture. Um, it's not always been that popular with either art historians or art critics, but I, I think there's been extensive re-evaluation re- in the last 20 years or so of the, the significance of surrealism. Um, I think it's important to say that for the surrealists themselves, um making art or writing poems or whatever was not an end in itself. They saw it as a way to liberate the human mind, to explore the human mind, to liberate the human spirit. And it was that that made it distinctive. It was not like something like like Cubism, which you can identify as a particular artistic style. It was more of a stance of sensibility, an an outlook on the world, if you like. Um, it was part of the much more general ferment um, in Europe and indeed in, in, uh, in the States at the end of World War I. Um, World War I was a, a formative experience for the Surrealist generation. Most of them, uh, the French ones anyway, um, served in the armed forces. They had the experience of the Western Front, the trenches and all, all the rest of it. So to take one example, um, Max Ernst, the German surrealist painter, um, in his memoirs talks about how at Verdun in 1917 he was shelling the French trenches at which the poet Paul Eluard, French surrealist, was defended. Um, shortly afterwards they, they became very close friends. Um, André Breton <coughs> cut his teeth as, as a medical orderly, um, which meant he got to see some pretty gruesome sights. And um, here, in particular, the ravings of, of people who'd been shell-shocked were suffering from what we'd now call post-traumatic stress disorder <clears throat> around the same time as he was reading Freud and, and discovering the, the unconscious. Now, basically, World War One, for this generation, or at least for this segment of it, just completely destroyed their faith in all the... Eternal verities, truth, beauty, etc. The very foundations of Western civilization were, were something that they just didn't trust, and they attacked it. Above all, in <clears throat> during the war itself and immediately afterwards, in Dada, um, famous anti-art movement, out of which Surrealism really came. Now, Andre Breton published the first Surrealist manifesto in 1924. And what he called, he defined surrealism as psychic automatism in its pure state, which seeks to uncover the actual functioning of thought, and this is the important thing, in the absence of any control exercised by reason exempts from any aesthetic or moral concern. So it's really interesting in getting at pure workings of the mind, and in particular the unconscious mind. And surrealism, all the things they got up to, um, were simply different ways of trying to do this, right? Now, by the mid-30s, by the mid-1930s, Surrealism was a major movement with very large international exhibitions in, in both Paris and London and a major cultural force of the time, right? Now, I hope that's enough, by way of note for the moment. You now <laughs> come on to modernism, right? Now, in many respects, Surrealism was part of a more general modernist surge at the beginning of the 20th century. If by modernism we understand very loosely um, lack of respect for, and in particular, an unwillingness to be bound by traditional norms, whatever they may be, right, um, an attempt that, you know, the word is a blank slate and it's up to us to, to use our minds to construct it, to reconstruct it in... It. <clears throat> In alignment with our own desires, our own wishes, so tended to be anti-clerical, anti-religious, anti-conservative, etc., etc. But across the arts and in in literature, now in one sense surrealism was part of a more general modernist attack on on the foundations of Western civilization. So we find them declaring in in 1925, um, supporting a rebellion, a colonial rebellion in in Morocco, they declare an insurrection against history, which I think is quite a a nice phrase, what they saw themselves doing. And the Surrealists saw themselves as being in the very vanguard of the modern movement. And the term modern comes up again and again and again in their writings in, in the 1920s. But where I think Surrealism was distinct from many other modernist movements, um, was that it was, at the same time, it was critical of the progressivism and the rationalism that were central to much modernist thought. So they didn't believe that human reason was a sufficient basis for either knowing the world or changing it, right? And nor did they believe that the history was a story of unbroken ever onward and upwards, from sea to shining sea progress, right? um, And I think that was there from the 1920s and, and throughout the century that became more and more central element of this realist worldview. Um, it was hardened by the experience of World War II. Um, you know, the post-World War I in many ways was a very optimistic era. But then you get the... the the crash, the Great Depression, fascism, World War II, and a lot of those dreams were not sideways. So you find André Breton, for example, um, who managed to get out of Europe and spent World War II in New York, um, took a vacation uh, up in Quebec on the the Gaspé Peninsula in, um, I think it was 1944, where he wrote a book called Arcanum 17. And in this book, he castigates all the types of reasoning which men are so shabbily proud of and which they're so miserably duped by. Then he says, the crisis is so severe that I see only one solution. The time has come to value the ideal of women at the expense of those of men. Um, And he goes on to attack the male type of intelligence at the end of the 19th century. Let art yield the passing lane to the supposedly irrational feminine. Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, <clears throat> Increasingly through, through the century, their focus was on what was not white, male, adult, and civilized. Um, so they're interested in young conscious. They're interested in what back then was referred to as, as the primitive, um, wouldn't be today. They're interested in, in the ideas of children they're interested in the ideas of those that society deemed insane or mad in one way or another. So, you know, to come back to the question, the relationship to modernism and surrealism was a very ambiguous one. On the one hand, it was clearly part of a wider modernist revolt against tradition, against historicism, etc. But on the other hand, um, in its anti-rationalist, anti-progressivist element it was right. highly critical of, of much modernist thinking. And that is an important trend in, in my book.
1: Great. Right. So why Prague? Why why is Prague of particular importance for the surrealist movement?
0: I have two answers to that question. Okay. Um the first one is, is a straightforward historical answer. Um, Prague was the most important centre of the Surrealist movement after Paris um, by the 1930s. Um, In the 1920s, and we'll talk about this more later, the Czech avant-garde kept its distance from Surrealism, but after 1929, um, a section of the Czech avant-garde drew very close to Surrealism, Uh, the poet Vyacheslav Nezval um, published a magazine called Zodiac in, in 1930, which was surrealist in all but name. Um, its first issue, I think, carried Andre Breton's Second Manifesto of Surrealism in full. Um, 1932, same year actually as the first surrealist exhibition in the US. Uh, There's an exhibition in Prague called Poetry in 1932, which, while not explicitly surrealist, actually had more surrealist works in one time and one place than had been exhibited at that time anywhere in the world. Um, Desval, who I've just mentioned, the poet, and uh, the painter um, Jinczyk uh, Sztyerski visited Paris in, in 1933. Made contact with Breton and the Surrealists. Um, and early the following year, there was a Czechoslovak Surrealist group formed in Prague. Um, following year, 1935, Breton and Elevard actually visited the city of Prague. Um, and what I'll say again, I'll say more about this later. Um, for Breton, what was crucial about Prague was that he saw it as, on the one hand, kind of um, mystery, magic. Um, He called it the magical capital of old Europe, very famous. But it was a combination of that and something else that was very dear to his heart at that point in time, which was that he thought, wrongly as it turned out, that the Czechoslovak surrealists had actually achieved what he'd been trying without success to achieve in France um, by then for the best part of a decade which was an understanding with the local communist part, um, whereby you could actually reconcile surrealism as as a project of spiritual liberation um, with a program of actual social revolution. And it was the confluence of these two things in Prague that that made it such a powerful image for him. Now, I'll also go into a bit more detail later. That broke down for all sorts of reasons. But Surrealism remained an important force in Prague um, right the way through the communist period as a kind of an underground movement where it had gotten written off by art museums like Melbourne in the West. Um, As I say, for much of the two or three decades after the war in the West, it was simply seen as something that was dead, belonged to the interwar period. Jean-Paul Sartre said, it's like something after the last war. It's like the Charleston and the Yoy, right? Um people wouldn't take that view now, right? But during that period, Prague, ironically, was one place where it did survive, as I say, very much an underground, and it wasn't accepted by the powers of the being. So that's the first part of the answer. It's a simple historical one that Prague was, as a matter of fact, a great centre internationally, of of surrealism. The second and more interesting question in many ways is, what was it about Prague that actually made the city such a conducive environment in which surrealism would flourish? Now, this is, I guess, the point where I have to explain why I call the book Prague, Capital of the 20th Century. Um, On the face of it, it's absurd. I mean, Prague is, I think, the 13th largest city in uh, in the EU, right? Um, think of what what, what we, you would call the capital of the 20th century. Well, you, you might argue, but most people would say with some justice, New York City, right? Um, <clears throat> the notion there being a centre of power, centre of culture and all the rest of it. Now, it was actually the German critic... Um, I'll say American fashion, Walter Benjamin, um, who called Paris the capital of the 19th century. Now, what he was getting at in doing that was to say that this is a place where we can actually investigate, we can excavate the dreams of the century, right? The the ideas, often even unconscious ideas, that really animated it. Paris wasn't actually the most powerful capital city in, in the 19th century, probably London. On a global scale, right? He chooses Paris. Come back to something you said earlier. You you quoted that phrase, a lot of people have quoted from the book, which is Prague is a place where the, the dreams of the century unravel again and again and again. And it's that that interests me about it. Right? I mean, I would say that very crudely. The 19th century can be seen very much as, at least from a European point of view, as a century of optimism, right? Progress, etc., etc. Here yeah, we're going to colonise the whole damn world, right? We're going to conquer everything with our science. It is onward and up. On, right? <clears throat> 20th century is much darker. It's punctuated by these <clears throat> incredibly bloody two global wars, right? And that's just the big wars. It's constant fighting proxy wars of one kind or another for the most of in the intervening period, um, is dominated by some pretty nasty political ideologies in, in the form of fascism um, and Stalinist communism. Right? Um, it's a brutal century. And the city of Prague has experienced just about every political regime over that period, Right, that the, the modernity could, could throw at Right. So it starts out. <clears throat> beginning of the century is still is the um, what is now the Czech Republic we're, we're just two provinces of the Habsburg Empire, right? Um, in 1918, um, independent Czechoslovakia is, is established. That lasts basically 20 years until it's broken up by the Munich Agreement with large bits that have been given away to Germany and Hungary. A year later, less than a year later, it's invaded. Um, Prague was actually the first European capital, apart from Vienna, to be, to, to be occupied by the Germans, and it was the last one to be liberated at the end of the war. During the war, it's protectorate. After the war, they, they have a brief period of re-establishing democracy, and then there's a communist coup you um, will see what I'm getting at here. In, in, in terms of it's the, the complexity, the reversals, there's no way to see this as a story of unbroken progress, right? Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that Prague qualifies as the capital of the century because it was a dark century, because it was a brutal century, and it's a place that superbly exemplifies it. It's because of what it's experienced. Um It's conducive, I'd say, in particular to a surrealist worldview. Because there is no progressive trajectory, there's no grand narrative that you can subsume it under. Um, It's a place that breeds suspicion of any kind of attempts to understand history as a rational process. It's a place where um, its inhabitants have a very fine sense of irony and black humour, which is not surprising given the history. I'll give you one example. Um, the Czech, uh, as I say, Czechoslovakia became independent in uh, 1918, and they didn't have anywhere for a parliament building. So initially, for most of the First Republic, um, that's 1918 to 38, the parliament actually met in the council hall called the Rudolfinum. Right now, the steps after the war etc build a parliament building, architectural competitions and so on, but it never actually got done. And so the point where they finally did get a, a parliament building was um, after the Soviet invasion of 1968, deep in the depths of um, what was referred to by the Communist Party as normalization, where parliament was purely and simply a rubber stamp organization. Right? In that period we get a brand new um, you yeah, Concrete glass, brutalist parliament building right in the centre of Prague, which happens to be between the National Museum at the top of Wenceslas Square and the uh, what used to be the German theatre just down the road, which then leads to the Czech job, what is a parliament? Something between a museum and a theatre. This um, is a typical kind of humour, the, the period um, read. Okay? Right. And you get this in, in many ways in um, <clears throat> the same humour, the same sensibility, the same relish for irony, but also a relish for the, uh, the ability of the erotic to, to, to puncture some of the more elevated ideas of ourselves, right? I um, mean, it runs through Czech literature and literature written in German in Prague, most obviously in um, France Kafka. But, I mean, we think of people like Yaroslav Hasek um, with the good soldier Sveik or Milan Kundera with his laughable loves and so on. Um, I'd argue that in the broader sense of the term, surreal, all of these have a surrealist sensibility.
1: And you've talked a lot about um, the 20th century, obviously, and, and the Prague's place in experiencing the 20th century, But the surrealist movement itself was really its height and what you cover most in the book is the 1920s and 1930s. So uh, what's the importance of understanding surrealism for understanding the 20th century? Is there something that really seeing what surrealism is about um, gives us greater insight into this 20th century as a whole? Um,
0: Okay, I I did mention earlier that... I hope to get around to writing a third book, which um, which actually was the later half of the, the 20th century, right? So in a sense, I've, I've written half the story. In okay. History, right? But having said that, um, okay, the German philosopher Hagen um, famously remarks that the owl of Minerva, Minerva being the Greek goddess, of the Roman goddess, of wisdom, takes flight only when the shades of night are gathering, right? Now, that's what I said earlier. We the 19th century is marked in many ways by progressive optimism of one kind or another. I mean, in the case of the U.S., it is literally the march from sea to shining sea, right? Um, and the period after World War One was a period of, in many ways, a renewed modernist optimism, um, particularly around the Russian Revolution right, and the promise of a new world that, that, that came up. So this gave way to the Great Depression, fascism, Stalinism, World, world War II, and then after World War II, um, <clears throat> 40 years of global conflict in, in, in the form of the Cold War. Right? Um, and even the great promise of 1989 appears to have gone sour in all sorts of ways if you look at many of the regimes across Europe. The best that they can be that can be said of them is that they're hopelessly corrupt. Um, they certainly don't epitomise some of the hopes of that, you know, the year that the Berlin Wall came down. So over and over again, we have got these dreams unravel. Now, why I think surrealism is... is Important here is because it's always recognised that, if you like what you might call the dark side of the force of of modernism, um, that it's actually not, and never is, and never can be a complete break. There's mm-hmm. always going to be haunted in in all sorts of ways. That there is far more to human beings than, than our conscious mind, or than our rational selves, etc. And it is the one intellectual and artistic movement that has insisted on this throughout the century. Um, so I the it's a matter of, I think it's significant because it attempts to grasp uncomfortable truths about the human condition and reconceptualize modernity in those terms and insist if we're going to talk about modernity, we have to talk about the whole universe, for example, as being an the table. Integrally modern event, not some relapse into barbarism or primitivism or whatever. Um, as André Breton put it once, um, he said, I would rather walk by night than pretend I'm walking in daylight. Right. And it's for those sorts of reasons that I think in many ways we will learn more about modernity from Prague than from New York. Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've not experienced fascism. They've not experienced communism. Yeah, they've experienced all sorts of bad shit, but um, not these major defining traumas of of, of the century. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, let's dive now into the book and talk about some of the specifics that you uh, look at in terms of surrealism and modernism in Prague and um, in in Czechoslovakia, and Prague served as an alternate pole to Paris, which you've already talked about Paris as the capital of the 19th century, 19th century, in uh, Guillaume Apollinaire's poem Zone, which, as you point out, is one of the key works of literary modernism and was published in 1913. But his Prague seems to be one based on this time-filtered memory of old Europe, and Czech modernist writers, on the other hand, were obsessed with Prague as a semiotic landscape but for its plasticity in the face of rapid changes in the early 20th century rather than its timelessness. So tell us more about the role of Prague in modernist literature.
0: Okay, I mean, I think we've hit on a very important um, ambiguity. We we shouldn't be misled by appearances. Um, Millions of tourists come to, to Prague every year. And if they're not coming for the beer, um, and it's kind of stag party central, etc., cetera, um, they're coming for the, the history. They're, they're coming to, to see a city which is the appearance of being unspoiled. In particular, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it did not suffer much from bombing during World War II, unlike most cities in, in central Europe. But the fact that there's an abundance of Gothic, Renaissance, and Baroque buildings in Prague, doesn't make it timeless. Um, it's, in fact, had one of the most tumultuous histories of, of anywhere in Europe or anywhere else over, over this last hundred years or so. Now, in part with the collusion of Prague writers in both Czech and German, I'm thinking of something like um, Gustav Meyrink's uh, Gollum novel, um, Prague has been abundantly romanticised in, in Western literature. But the focus is on um, the Prague of Rudolf II and the alchemists and, and so on and so on. Um, and André Breton here did absolutely nothing to help in this regard because he bought it up plan and sink. Breton was very heavily into alchemy um, <clears throat> and Prague, you know, so he lapped it all up, all the things that the tour guys will, will take you to now. Now, many Czechs have reacted strongly against um, one would be the um, Czech surrealist writer, Petr uh, Kral, um, who left the country in uh, in '68 along with with many others, and um, went into exile in Paris, but has returned since um, 1969, 1989. Now, while in Paris, he, he wrote a guidebook to Prague, largely from memory, um, which is one of the more interesting books on on the city. I just want to read you one um, brief excerpt from that. He says, In the summer twilight, the nostalgic sigh that rises from the stones and the gardens of the capital is not so much the reminder of Prague of alchemists or Jesuits as the tourist guides would like. The spirit revived by memory, which pulses in the walls and behind the facades, is above all that which inhabited the city between the walls. Rather than Rudolf II and his picturesque court, it is Nesval of Oskarvance and Verick who are remembered one evening in the 20s in a wine cellar that may be historic, but from which you can already hear in the distance the screeching and ringing of the trams. The memory of Mozart's celebrated stay is eclipsed by that of the almost anonymous visit Marcel Duchamp, made to Prague for a chess tour, um, And that, I think, much better gives you a kind of a, a check, or at least check literary, um, sensitivity toward the city. In Czech literature of the 20th century, I'm making a huge generalization here. When it was allowed to be, which it wasn't always, um, particularly in the communist period, um, was dominated by by modernism in in one shape or another, right? Um, It's true not only of literature, it's true of visual arts, it's true of film, Chet, a very fine um, tradition of film. And as you say, the plasticity of Prague's history, um, and indeed of identity itself, is a dominant theme in, in much of this. So for example... Many Czech writers have addressed the issue of changing street names. What does it mean when the names of streets change every 20 years or so? What does it do through any sense of continuity, right, of knowing where you are, knowing who you are? Mm-hmm. And you could make an argument, although I haven't made it explicitly in the book, that it was the fractured history of the city and the country of which it was a, a part. Which once again made Czech literature unusually open to fractured modernist or postmodernist forms of narrative as ways of actually grasping the experience. Um, again, I think, so. if you look at the writings of Milan Kundra, um, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious that this is going on. And
1: speaking of uh, Milan Kundra, He argued that what is perceived as marginality from the viewpoint of London, Paris, Berlin, or New York is instead a different modernity that has its own evolutionary rhythm. And yet many of the leading Czech modernists spent years abroad before achieving recognition at home, as you point out in the book. So how did Czech modernism develop differently, and how did their experiences in Paris and other cities affect key Czech modernists?
0: Once again, we could spend the whole interview on this. Um, what I think is important about him what what Kundra has to say here is a notion of simultaneity. Um, things that we think of as taking place in in sequence, right, um, actually come together and occur at the same time, giving us some very strange bedfellows. So he argues that you have what he calls the telescoping of eras in, in central Europe which gives you a blend, which he thinks is a very felicitous blend from the point of view of the arts of what he calls the 19th century side, which is um, the national struggle stru- struggle for national autonomy or independence. Remember I said at the beginning of the period, Czech lands were part of a wider empire um, <clears throat> A closeness to the, po- the popular classes in America, you probably talk about them as the middle classes, right? That term has somewhat more restricted compass in, in Europe. Um, and the notion that artists and writers are in some way spokespeople, right, for the nation. That's the 19th century side. Right? The 20th century side is the high modernism in, in terms of styles and genres and it's these two coming together the kundra of things makes Central European modernism unique and what I think a different way of putting it would be to say that in Central Europe in general and certainly in, in into Czechoslovakia the avant-garde was much more central to the national culture. Um, and that centrality simultaneously meant that the modernism was inflected in more popular directions than than less elitist directions, right? Less esoteric directions than than would be the case in um, much of Western Europe or North America. Um, A friend of mine puts it very well, yung Toman when he said, actually in the interwar republic, um, modernism was the national identity, right? This was a new state on the European stage determined to prove its its credentials, right? Now, mm-hmm. that then meant, say, so in the case of architecture, that both <clears throat> um, the national government or city governments, regional governments, um, and big private industrial companies like Batya, um were prepared to fund modern architects to put up strikingly progressive buildings, right? Where they would have faced a wall of conservative opposition in France or Britain if they tried to do the same thing, right? And the argument for architecture applies more more generally. Um, There was a closer relationship to avant-garde culture and popular culture, right? Um, In... Czechoslovakia as it was, then will be the case in in the West. And so, kind of more questions
1: now. Uh, Well, you actually, um, I think, answered that in terms of the Czech experience, the development of Czech modernity, and it's uh, a more popular connection. And we'll get back to architecture in a minute, but this is probably a good point to talk about the Vietzel, um, which was founded in 1920. And so, tell us about this group of avant-garde artists, um, and in particular the relationships that they developed with French surrealists uh, André Breton and Paul Edouard, and kind of their participation in the surrealist movement more generally.
0: Okay, Seal um, <clears throat> was the um, it was the leading Czech <clears throat> modernist movement of of the 1920s. And it involved probably most of the most talented people of, of their generation. Um, at its height, it probably had it was a bit iffy who exactly was and wasn't a member. It wasn't that formal, right? But maybe 60, 70 members. Right? Now, what was it? It was founded in 1920, and some of its members at that point were actually still in high school. Um, most of them were born around the year 1900. So you're talking about very young people, mostly men. Um, but not altogether. who'd grown up under the shadow of World War I, but unlike Breton and Elouard, hadn't actually been old enough to fight. It. And I think this may be one clue to a slight difference in, in sensibility. Um, there were two things that really marked it out. One was this incredible breadth. Um, it included novelists, Poets, painters, and sculptors, but it also had a very strong architectural. Um, some of the leading architects of the generation. Um, it had an equally strong theatrical, role involving um, producers, playwrights, and performers. Right, and it actually started up the most famous interwar theatre in Prague, was called the Liberated Theatre, which was an absolutely unique. An extremely popular kind of anarchic mixture of avant-garde theatre, jazz, um, musical review, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Um, these are two guys I mentioned earlier, Voskovec and Barak, um, <clears throat> were the two people who who actually ran that. They were definitely still members. It had dancers, um, very wide range of people. The other was the incredible longevity, it lasted right through the decade, which for any avant-garde movement is just Right? because I don't know, they split and they quarrel and, and so on <clears throat> now if you ask why I think one factor is that there was a lack of any real ideological rigidity including questions of style, it was a very broad church um, <clears throat> the nearest anybody came to defining it was um, Carol Tiger who was the leading theorist of, of the generation or at least the leading publicist and um, And he had a motto, of constructivism for weekdays and poetism for Sundays. So it was everything from the super rational, let's construct a new world on engineering principles, to almost realist poetism, which was a a, a, peculiarly Czech thing. Um, But it was about the poetry of everyday life, of of dance halls, of films, of circus, of Um, again closeness to to popular culture Um, I could give you some examples but we probably haven't got enough time Um, in the 1920s WSL was actually fairly distant from the surrealists and uh, they were suspicious of them Um, certainly knew about Right? And I mean, there's several debut film members actually travelled frequently between Parliament and Paris. Some of them actually lived in Paris. Um, Stierski and Toyen, the two painters, um, who became key members of the surreal, the Prague Surrealist group, actually lived in Paris for four years at the end of the 1920s. So it wasn't that they were ignorant of what was going on. It was Breton and his group. They had, I think, two key points of difference. One was that they didn't really like all this stuff about the unconscious. Um, they thought there was more to being an artist than just passively writing down what came out of the unconscious, when you were stoned, or have found some other way of, you know, switching off the aesthetic and moral <coughs> filters. Okay, so that was a strong point of difference. Um, a second one was around politics. Um, many of the Czech by no means all, but many of the members of Deviat Seal were actually members of the Communist Party or very close to the Communist Party, which was founded, I think, in 21. Um, and for most of the 1920s, that relationship was easily managed. It only became difficult after Stalin's rise in, in the Soviet Union. And they simply felt that... Um, the French surrealists were far too interested in individual spiritual liberation than actually changing social conditions, right? So those are the two key points of, of difference with Deviat Seale um, in the 1920s.
1: And you've mentioned um, architecture earlier and the participation of architects in this, um, in this group loosely defined. <clears throat> Excuse me. And architecture was a major form of modernist expression. Um, but as you point out, um, with uh, Czech modernist architecture, that they didn't necessarily preclude the use of romantic and nationalist elements. And you discuss a number of buildings, the Bacha store that you mentioned, the trade fair palace. So can you talk to us some more about these buildings and especially how um, their archi- the architecture in Prague demonstrates what you call modernism's plural? Okay.
0: Um, I think MoMA has an awful lot to answer for. Um, what has gone down in, in history as the international stuff was basically invented by Alfred Barr and a couple of other people at MoMA for an exhibition in um, oh, it was the early 1930s, right? And and what they did was that they, they travelled to Europe. They figured out that there were a lot of stylistic convergences between a number of different architects working in different countries. Um, they codified these as a style, and then they had a big and very influential exhibition in Manhattan called The International Style, and Hitchcock and Johnson's book came out of that. Um, and that then became canonical. But the reality was much more complicated. What they are actually doing was abstracting elements, right, from things that were often related but rather different in terms of cross-fertilization influences and so on, right? So I'd say that by way of preference, which is that to counterpose a kind of a nationalistically influenced modernism in Europe with the international style begs the question of to what extent there was ever an international style anyway at this point. Right. Afterwards, certainly. They became much clearer international stuff, right? You had much more of a hodgepodge um, <clears throat> before the mid-1930s, right? Now, in that context, I think, okay, I'll mention three um, instances in Prague. One is Cubist architecture, which might sound a contradiction in terms. But <clears throat> in the years immediately leading up to World War One. Um, there was a group of artists and architects in, in Prague um, who were heavily influenced by Cubism. French Cubism. They spent a lot of time in Paris. Um, but, again, this comes back to what I said earlier about the connection with applied arts, with popular culture and so on. They decided they wanted to apply that in all sorts of areas, from furniture design, book cover design, through to architects. And there are a number of very, very distinctive buildings in Prague, surviving now, which are clearly influenced by cubism in the kind of way that the facades are are cracked and um, they're very difficult to describe, you actually have to see them, right? But this this was one very clear instance of of, um, a national inflection of an international movement, Right. Second one, is, I mentioned the Trade Fair Palace, right? Now, the Trade Fair Palace is particularly interesting. It was built at the end of the 1920s. At the time, it was the biggest functionalist building in Europe, right? So in many ways, very much a showcase for what a couple of years later would be called the international style. But Corbusier, the great French one, who MoMA in the international style take as one of the, the big four, um, visited the Trophy Palace um, in, I think it was 1928. He was mightily impressed. He had also of charisma, he would, being a singer good but he was also extremely ambitious. He so I've, all I've managed to do so far is build a few small villas and look at what these bloody chokes have done. It's huge, you know, massively impressive. And the thing was taken up, and it, it has now become the... Um, a part of the National Gallery, and there's a gallery of Czech modern art, so you think there's a perfect symbiosis between the art that's shown inside and the building itself. So, great symbol of modernism. But if you then ask, well, who actually built it and what for? It was built by rather right-wing, conservative Czech nationalist industrialists who wanted to make Prague the capital of the Slav nation. but he was also a practical man and thought that this would actually enable him to exhibit industrial goods much better than the more kind of classical traditional buildings on display. The first art exhibition that was held there wasn't a modern work at all. It was Alphonse Mucha's Slav Epic, which is this gigantic series of 20 enormous paintings done in a kind of Art Nouveau style Um, which relates a very romantic version of the history of the Czechs, right? So there's a clear dissonance if you think of modernism as MoMA would lead you to believe modernism. There's a massive dissonance between the architectural style of the building and what actually went on inside, right? But it wasn't dissonant to anybody at the time, right? Because history doesn't actually behave in 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 accord with the dictates of our historians' ideas of what style should go with what. Mm -hmm. So does that help?
1: Yes. Yeah. Great. And if we get up to the 1930s now, the Wetzel disbanded in 1931. And can you explain what brought about the implosion of this group? Obviously, you already mentioned that, you know, keeping a group of uh, avant-garde artists together um, was quite an accomplishment. But what finally um, brought an end to this um, structure such as it was? And you've also mentioned a little bit about the relationship of the Czech modernists and surrealists um, with the Communist Party. So if you could tell us a little bit about those two things in the 1930s.
0: Well, the first thing I think is to say that disbanding, which I, I think was the word that I used, is, is probably too strong. It wasn't a dramatic event. It was more of a gradual process of it just sort of ceasing to be, okay? Um, but, I mean, Nezval was signing himself as a representative of Deviat Seal as late as 1933 in connection with his visit to, to Paris to, to see Andre Breton. And many of Deviat members continued to work together in other forums, including the Czechoslovak-Sreelist Group. So that's just by way of preface. Um mm-hmm. as I mentioned, there were always internal tensions stylistic and otherwise within the group, and keeping it together was always something sort jubbling of juggling event, um largely on the part of Carol Tiger um I don't think we could keep it up together, and the world was changing um't sound like radial. um. <clears throat> Moving into the 1930s, the kind of playful, exuberant ethos, um, politism, which is the most distinctive thing about the WSU, really was beginning to seem less and less in tune with a nastier and nastier world. Um, there was a great crash in 1929, which was shortly followed by pretty cataclysmic unemployment um, in Czechoslovakia. Um, there was the rise of fascism in Germany. And what had been throughout the 20s, the great hope for the left, the Soviet Union was now under Stalin's control. And as you move into the mid-30s, you get the development of show trials, persecution of the um, Soviet avant-garde and so on. There was also the rise of Sudeten German and other right-wing politics within Czechoslovakia, right? leading a lot of people on the left to think what we actually need is really some sort of a united front. Um, so a lot of the WSL people poured their energies into the formation of the left front, um, of which Tiger was the first president. Right? Now, coincidentally with this, you're saying um, you actually got closer relationships with the Czech, with the French realists, partly because I think the Czechs were becoming more aware of what I, or well, they weren't this then, members of Debieson, what I referred to earlier as the dark side of the force. Um, and partly because the Andre Breton's group had themselves embraced Marxism in, um, in uh, Breton's Second Manifesto of, of 1929, and he himself and, and Alain and several others had actually joined the French Communist Party. So there were grounds for um, a rapprochement. As regards the relationship with the Czech Communist Party, generally good throughout the 1920s, um, began to get bad um, after Clement Goldwald took over the party um, towards the end of the 20s and brought through a Bolshevization drive. and there was a famous expulsion of, I think it was seven Czech writers, um, some of whom were members of Devies, Right from the um, Yaroslav Seif, the future Nobel Prize winning poet was one of them. They were as well from the Communist Party, but nonetheless, throughout the 1930s, at least until the mid-30s, there was continued cooperation between um, the future Czech surrealists and the Communist Party. Largely through the left front. Okay? Now, the guy that actually set up the Czechoslovak Surrealist Group, Vyacheslav Nezville, was and had for many years been a member of the Communist Party. Right. And eventually, um, <clears throat> just as happened with the Czech, with the with the French Surrealist Group, the Czechoslovak Surrealist Group split. Um, over the issue of the Moscow Trials and loyalty to the Soviet Union, and um, Nezval eventually disbanded the group um, <clears throat> on grounds that you can't, um, as he put it, chuck it and Stalin in the same basket. Right. Um, that's something I go to, into an enormous detail in the book, both the, the, the split in both the French and the uh, Czech Surrealist movements and what that might mean. in in terms of where the book starts, which is Breton and Eluard in in Prague in 1935, thinking that they found one place where finally we can reconcile political commitments and artistic freedom.
1: Mm -hmm. And that was actually going to be my uh, next question, that uh, you start the book in 1935 and we've kind of worked our way up to that point. So, um, and this this vision that the... um, Eluard and Breton had that um, the Czech Surrealists had found this combination um, seems to be culminate in this 1935 visit, but at that same point that things were kind of falling apart for um, in terms of that collaboration. It sounds like.
0: Well, <clears throat> well, I mean, <clears throat> things happen, I guess, fairly quickly when they did fall apart. I mean. Eloi Breton went to Prague in the spring of 1935, right? And at that point, everything was hunky I mean, um, Breton saw the whole thing through rose-tinted spectacles. He was basically on his honeymoon with his second wife. You know. um, in retrospect, it was an incredibly romantic view that he formed of Prague, right? Um, but that led to return visits that summer by a Czech surrealist to Paris. And they, they cooperated very closely over the next couple of years. Um, the real problems came to a head in thirty um, in, eight. In so I mean, there's a period of two or three years. Breton still, I think, in many ways, he, he never abandoned that image of problem. And that, that's the strange thing about it. But it came to um, a really sort of tragic denouement after when Breton was still clinging to this vision that he formed in the course of that visit, um, And <clears throat> a guy called Zavish Kalandra, who was a Communist Party journalist um, who'd followed Breton and Elwar around, I mean, he was a sympathizer of, of surrealism, and written very good write-ups of, of their lectures and so on in the communist press, right? Um, this man was arrested. He was um, piggybacked on to the show trial of Murder uh, Harakova, which was one of the, <clears throat> the first of the major Czechoslovak um, communist show trials. And he was condemned to death. Now, at this point, Breton writes to Paul Elouard, who, with whom he'd broken just before World War II because Elouard had stayed supporting the Communist Party. Right? Um, Elouard subsequently rejoined the Communist Party, fought in the resistance during the war, became a kind of a big wig within the international Communist movement. So Breton writes to Eloir saying, you remember this guy Calandria? Remember how well he treated us. This is what has happened. He's condemned to death. Can you use your influence to try and get a pardon? Right? And Elwha wrote back and said, I'm not going to waste my time on people who admit their guilt when there are so many innocent people in the world. Right? And I mean, you can imagine this. Elwha and Britain have been very, very constrained. From, you know, since basically they were in their teens, right? Then they'd broken up over communism. Breton still has this very romantic image of Prague in his head. Um, <clears throat> Prague comes back to haunt him in, in the form of this vicious shell trial. And then O.R. takes this um, particular stance. Um, in a way, the, the two bookends of, of, of my book are actually the visit to Prague in 35, of Breton and O.R. and then what happened after the war with, with uh, the communist shell trial right? Yeah, you know, pinpointing the dreams and the unraveling of those
1: dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, gets to um, talking about the post-war era, that one of the things that was really striking to me was that um, you demonstrate in this book that Prague was indeed a center of modernism and surrealism in the early 20th century, and yet... Czech artists um, were um, underrepresented or even not represented at all in major post-war exhibitions of surrealist and modernist art. So why is that? How, what happened to these Czech artists that are, you know, in the consciousness of, of um, in a, the a, United States and Western Europe?
0: In a word, I'd say the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, when the great architectural historian Kenneth Frampton visited Czechoslovakia, <clears throat> After the fall of the, uh, <clears throat> the Berlin Wall, etc., Cameron Backing wrote an article called Modernism Worthy of the Name. They said, Oh my God, there are over 250 extremely large buildings in this little country built in a course of 20 years, which are absolute you know, epitomes of, of modernist architecture. How can we miss all this? Well, part of the answer is that <clears throat> there was what I call a symmetrical erosion. On both sides of that, I right? Within Czechoslovakia, during the 1950s, almost all avant-garde art from the first half of the century fell foul with Stalinist critique of bourgeois formalism and the demand for socialist realism. That lasts about a decade. There were no exhibitions of, of this work. There was no books or articles being published on this work. Um, I've gone through, you know, catalogs of the National Gallery and stuff like that, and it was almost entirely, um, it was either approved socialist, realist artists, or they were going back to painters from the 19th century, right? Um, the first breach of that was a show put on in Brno, the second largest city in the country, in, in 1958, co-founders of modern art, um, which looked at the pre-World War One. The, the Cubist generation, they didn't look at anything after that, and that was highly controversial, right? They, they wanted to take it proud, but it was stopped, right? There was some, the earlier part of the 60s um, to mid-60s, there was a brief, I was known as the Thor before the Prague Spring, um of 68, and that was the only time during the whole communist period where there was any real systematic attempt um, <clears throat> to deal with the def- devi Cczeslovak you know, realist group um, before the late very late 1980s right? I'll give you an example actually, i think um, an addition of Carol Tiger's collected works Tiger was the major devi theorist who went on to become a leading member of the Czechoslovak realist group um, <clears throat> The first volume of what was meant to be a three-volume collected works came out in 1966. Right, um, fine. Things showed that things were beginning to liberalise. Second volume came out in 1969, just after the invasion, but it never got to the bookstores. Um, almost all copies, maybe a hundred or so, survived, which I have one. Um, were recalled and pulp. Right. third volume came out in 1994. So, I mean, throughout that period, it was politically very contentious, and, and there was still... Cechstorvets' religious group in particular was still seen as transcripts. okay? <clears throat> now, this meant the museums were not collecting this stuff, or if they had it, they weren't lending it. They were not exhibiting it. There were no monographs, there were no catalogs for the best part of 40 years. So things slip into oblivion, right? Now, I don't think that's sufficient to explain what happened in the West. I think it's part of it, right? I said there was a symmetrical erosion. What happened on the Western side of the Iron Curtain, um, and I mentioned MoMA earlier, was that MoMA's version of the history of modern art became canonical for the period of about 30 years or so. This was a, a history that was, was written largely around the, the view of modern art, which was um, associated with the great critic, critic Kevin Greenberg, and uh, MoMA's first director, Alfred well, which analysed modernism very much as a matter of succession of styles. So it seen in purely aesthetic terms. And it was disconnected from any wider political or social engagement. This was actually quite handy because it then meant that you could claim people who are radical communists and people who are radical fascists equally for the modernist canon without troubling yourself about what they thought they would do. Key issue was whether it was cubist, whether it was futurist or whatever. Right, And that was the story of modern art, which most of us grew up with. Okay? Recent work has suggested that the CIA was actually rather heavily funding this. Um, in, in particular, the notion of um, abstract expressionism being you know, the, the, the terminal point of modernism, right? the thing to which was, everything is going. But against the background of this story of modern art, um, Prague avant garde is actually not very interesting because it's, it's defined by this hybridization. the the Kundra thoughts about, a lot of their best work is in the applied arts in one way or another rather than in painting or sculpture, right? Even in sculpture, the best work is actually um, with someone like Pashanek who was working with neon tubes long before Jim Dine or anybody in the West was. Um, So I think these these two went together and reinforced each other. Right? and that has really distorted the the history of, of modernism on both sides. Well, I mean, go.
1: Well, I think that we have um, taken a lot of your time, and and at the same time, I I think I'm afraid we've only touched on uh, the depth and breadth of this book. But that just gives our listeners all the more reason to actually sit down and read the book. So I encourage um, all of you out there who are um, uh, fascinated by this um, initial look at the book to, to actually sit down and read it. I, I found it very uh, enjoyable to read as well as a fascinating book. And you've talked about uh, this um, potential third book, which hopefully will come about, and one day we can interview you on uh, that. But what else are you working on at this time?
0: I just completed... Um what would be a very short book um, on surrealism and sociology, which I'm looking for a publisher for? Mm-hmm. Um, that's purely an ideas book, okay? But in a way it's a reflection on, on what I've done in, in, in the Prague book. So the Prague book doesn't get into any kind of heavy theory. Um, I have a um, contract to write say, I've wanted to do for years, actually, which is to write a travel guide to the city of Prague. Um, so, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, popular rather than academic market where I can show that there may actually be some something of interest there um, that goes beyond either the kind of, you know, quaintly and cutely historic or, you know, the cheap booze. Uh, so that's what I'm working on right now um to have it done by early next year
1: well that's great that'll be motivation to travel to Prague so that I can take advantage of your new guide um because it is a beautiful city well thank you again for um taking the time to talk to us and um in the meantime um we look forward to the works that are coming out and to one day getting part three of this trilogy. And thanks also to our listeners and for joining us today. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies. So thank you, Derek.
0: Thank you.